Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. My guest today is Lewis Nelson. He is the author of the just-published Mosaic, War Monument Mystery. Uh, Lewis, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Dad. Thank you. It's good to see you. So in the interest of full disclosure to everyone, I have to say Lewis is a family friend of many decades standing, and it's a real pleasure to have him uh, on the show to discuss what is a, a really fascinating book, a, a combination of, of topics, it, and it literally is the book itself a mosaic. I'm assuming the, the title is not accidental. It is a, a tale that I think everyone will appreciate how it's woven together, the, the Korean War, the Korean War Veterans Memorial, a memoir of a very a life very well and interesting, uh, well-lived and, and, and an interesting life, a reflection on the history of D.C., where the Korean War Veterans Memorial is, and the construction of the Washington and, and Lincoln and Jefferson memorials all woven together. Lewis, that, I mean, this is a, was a big work in, in many ways. How, how did this come about, the history of the writing of, of this particular book? As truthfully as I could tell you, it, it, it came about because I started working on the design of the Korean War Veterans Memorial back in 1990. And the dedication of the memorial happened in 1995. That's a long time ago. And then, so some of the work really started to evolve at that particular time, or some of the words, some of the ideas started to evolve at that time. However, it wasn't until 9-11 that it happened. A couple of people uh, called me, a couple of magazines called me. They wanted a statement about memorials because a lot of people were talking about doing a memorial in respect to the losses that we had here in New York and in Washington as well as in New Jersey in uh, Pennsylvania. So I put something together, put some words together and then I thought that also along with the way there was a lot of people writing about memorials and many didn't know what they were talking about from my point of view anyway as egotistical as that probably sounds uh, because we did an awful lot, I did an awful lot of exploration of what memorials mean, and particularly in the case of the National, Mama, the National Mall, because that's where all the memorials that we basically know as most Americans, unless we're in Dothan, Alabama, and there's one to the Bull Weevil and various other kinds of memorials that are throughout the United States for various and good reasons because they mean something to people. And that's the important thing about the, what a memorial is. It has to do something with either a loss or a commemoration. So let's stop there just for, for a second, because I think that's fascinating. The, the, the book, as I said, weaves together many of these tales, but the history of memorials and the thinking about memorials uh, is an important component of that. I, I was trained as a historian. I'm very sensitive to every small town in the United States has a the, the, the Doughboy Cenotaph, the Cenotaph, 
starting the uh, World War One memorials. Though, of course, in in many parts of the country, also Civil War memorials. But in every town center, every small town, there is a World War One memorial, which kind of starts the modern, in my mind, starts the modern generation of memorials. And then you you provide a really interesting history on the construction of the Washington Monument, the Jefferson and the Lincoln memorials. Uh, maybe not in that order, Washington, Lincoln, and Jefferson, uh, and how then really your, uh, the Korean uh, War uh, Veterans Memorial and the Vietnam uh, Memorial, you know, differed and uh, different representations of that. And I, I think people who attend or see these wars, whether it's the, the World War One Cenotaph in their own village or come to D.C. in the mall, I think it's really important that we don't think enough about what do these represent and, and where did they come from, but uh, the book does a lovely job of kind of characterizing the evolution of memorials over time. Thanks. You want me to, to re, re, remark on that? The, Please. Uh, it's, it, it became very important because at the time when we were assigned to do this by the Act of Congress, as a matter of fact, and the Act of Congress was that the memorial must commemorate the service of the men and women who were the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen of the Korean War, not necessarily the commanders, uh, which is major, major difference because most every other memorial has to do with the, who the leader is. So of course, and they get all the credit. So uh, I was concerned as to how the Korean War Veterans Memorial, my little project of which there was a sculptor and myself, I did the mural and the architects of record, how we are going to make this look as be and exist as part of a community. And the community was the Lincoln Memorial. And I think the Lincoln Memorial is one of the finest memorials I have ever seen built anywhere, as well as the Vietnam Memorial, which is probably the one memorial that has healed a nation in the midst of all of the problems that this country went through internally uh, with recognizing the war and uh, commemorating the war in all kinds of ways and the, the service of the men and women that served over there and not, not even talking about the problems of the drugs and this and that and the other thing that came out of it. And then all the way back to the Washington Monument, because the Washington, those three became the central folks. And those three are the central items with, if you add the World War II Memorial to that are the memorials on the National Mall that had to do with wars as opposed to has to do with leadership. So, so one had to deal with the other. Our, in contrast architecturally, but it also had to deal with, with the nature of how they were they evolved and what their history was. So, and, you know, it's interesting that, that I, again, I, I've visited many of your listeners, listeners here will have visited all of those memorials. Few of us will have thought about the difference between the sculpture and the building. Maybe, maybe you have because you have an aesthetic sensibility, but I think of the Lincoln Memorial as a, a unitary uh, structure. Washington Monument is separate because there is no sculpture, but the others are in fact combinations of a an architectural piece and then a sculpture. And the Lincoln, I'm sorry, the uh, the Korean uh, War Veterans Memorial and the Vietnam uh, Memorial also ha have this different, you know, sculptures of soldiers, and then the mural in your case or the wall in the Vietnam case that is 
the relationship between the two and the fact that they're different artists, I wouldn't have immediately realized. That's a really interesting, your, your relationship with the sculptor. Uh, it's uh, uh, Frank, Frank Gaylord, is that correct? Frank Gaylord. Yes. And uh, that uh, even in the Lincoln Memorial, the person who designed the building was not the person who designed the sculpt did the sculpture, that type of thing. I, I was unaware of that dynamic, shall we say. But it's very important in, in that particular case, in the case of Lincoln, it's very important because those two guys worked together. In the case of the Jefferson, they were lifetimes apart. Okay. That the architect who, who put that, the structure together and said that there should be a sculpture in the middle of it didn't know who the sculptor was. And the sculptor didn't know who the architect was because they had died in the intervening time. Mm -hmm. And there was like a war came up, a Second World War came up in the time. So we didn't really see. As a matter of fact, the original sculpture of Jefferson was really a paper mache sculpture. And then it turned into a, a, a piece of bronze only after the Second World War. And But in my estimation, whereas Lincoln looks absolutely crystal clear proper. Right. And right. just glows he glows sitting there. yes sitting there in all his whiteness looking out over over uh, the reflecting pool and to uh, and vietnam to the left and uh, korea to the right and world war ii beyond he is just the right size well it turns out that he was probably originally designed was half the size he eventually ended up being so it was, and, and they had this conversation back and, back and forth, forth between these two guys. I had a similar conversation with, with Frank, although not as, not as detailed as that because they were two different pieces mm -hmm. uh, of, of different kinds of work. The important thing here in this way that I wanted from, is I wanted people to come to that mural and to be able to see the soldier who was in Korea in 1950 and 1953 and see how different or really how similar they are to the youth of today. And then 50 years from now, thank you, 50 years from now thinking of, I would have something standing, I would have something standing 50 years from now that I did, is a truly amazing thought that somebody could see what the, the people looked like at that particular time. And then I was given this gift by God Almighty because I didn't plan it. And somehow or another, because of the nature of the engraving and how engraved at night and then and the light falling on it makes the wall disappear. So consequently, what you see are ghost-like images. Which is, yeah. And you see and it just looks sur surreal, absolutely surreal. It's like an amazing gift that I was given. And so um, the, the, the memorial itself, another thing that one wouldn't have thought about, the people come and see your, your work and they think, wow, that was interesting design, interesting implementation. W one thing that a, a, a history of the construction of the work shows that the terms of the engagement changed. There was an architect of record, they have, there's a, a committee, you, you have uh, chapters or paragraphs, extensive discussions of the committee. <laughs> a committee made <laughs> this memorial, and, and one raises the issue that committees may have made lots of memorials. You only see the final thing. But of course, the committee changed. The, the mandates change. And so you're, you're moving, the goalposts are moving a little bit as you're trying to play the game. 
I, I didn't have that much of a problem. I had a major problem when the, the principal of the foundation that put this together, a four-star general, uh, died. And he died on Christmas Day, and we hadn't finished the design yet. Mm-hmm. And the agreements that I had had with him as to what he wanted to see, and he agreed with me, which is nice to have, you know, to have to have the principal guy agree with what you want to do. I wanted all the all all of the the uh, portraits. There's you know something like over two thousand portraits uh, on that wall. I wanted them to show essentially just the face of the person and what his occupation maybe was, and that's what General Stillwell wanted as well. General Stillwell died. And then I, the executive director came and thought that most of his people were thinking that they wanted to see all the implements of war. They wanted to see the helicopters. They wanted to see the aircraft. They wanted mm-hmm. to see the tanks. They wanted to see, which was difficult. And it was, uh, and for me, because it was a major change if we did something like that, a major change as well, because I didn't think it was the right thing to do. Aesthetically, uh, yeah. Aesthetically, intellectually, uh, because this is not a recruiting poster. Mm-hmm. This is a poster about the nature of service and who has given this service. And they're simply men and women of different ages, of different cultures and so forth that were all on that, on that wall. And eventually I was able to work it through, at least in my own mind. So there are some degrees of, there are some, aircraft and so forth but they're very faint uh-huh. very much in the background <laughs> so but we're going to work it but things do change and yeah. you just have to live with that change uh i'm not so sure what some of those problems are i'll tell you one major change it uh, you you probably very few people would know this but the washington monument an extraordinary plinth in the middle of the air so well defining you know very few things that define what who washington what washington is or where it is or the nature of the name of the place you see that you say washington washington dc the original design for it was that plinth and a colonnade around it with general washington in a chariot drawn (laughs) by horses in front of him um and there was a lot of question as to what who you call general who you call washington whether you whether he's king or whether he's sir roman emperor all kinds of different yeah all of that was all ironed out and eventually one thing led to another because of the politics and also probably the ownership and uh, uh, of the ideas at the time as to what they finally decided upon they just forgot about the sculpture yeah. and just gave, fortunately and, and then they had somebody uh they had another group come in to take another look at the foundation because mostly that area and so forth is swampland so they had to do a lot of reconstruction of the underpinnings the proportions of the of the memorial the monument changed a bit the unfortunate thing is that all the way at the top there's a little apex uh, kind of a, a, a four-sided uh, pyramid. Yeah, it's made out of titanium. No, it's made out of aluminum, which was one of the most expensive metals at the time when this was built. 
and on it uh, is the inscription of who were the architects and who were the benefactors of this, that, and the other thing. They never gave the original architect credit, which is unfortunate. I gave them credit in my book. Yeah, you mentioned several times uh, that you and Frank were dropped off of uh, at various oh. ceremonies acknowledging the uh, inauguration of the, the monument. Uh, I think there were two separate episodes. In both episodes, you and Frank were left off the paperwork given credit, which I, I found stunning. Uh, so I'm glad you're able to, to you know, properly document that uh, historically. We were lucky because uh, for one various other reasons. So the pre President Clinton was looking for my name, who happened to know my name, but if ands or buts about it. But and he was trying to find the the sculptor's name. He said, "I knew your name." He apologized to me for not yeah. mentioning my name, but he, could, uh -huh. he didn't want to mention my name unless he could tell the tell everybody the sculptor's name. But he couldn't yeah. find the sculptor's name. He couldn't understand why are these guys not doing that. Right, the the committee. I was expecting a history of the Korean War veterans monument and fascinating. Some of the technical stuff is also very interesting. Maybe we should go there first before we get back to some of the other topics I want to raise. And the, the technology that you used to make those panels with the images of the soldiers is not simple. It was a very elaborate process that you describe, maybe you can summarize it because I, I think people will find that I found it interesting and I, I wasn't expecting it to be such a You mean the process. transference of the images? Yes. The, where you got the images from the archives and then how you put that onto to the stone and then in Minnesota and get that over here, uh, over here, uh, back to DC and so forth. It, it, uh, I, I think what we, we worked out a state of the art at that time, and this was in the fifties, although I think that they had good leadings to it. I figured that if if you could print a fork, if you could print a photograph that's on a half tone in a black and white newspaper, and either print a small photograph big or a big photograph small, that somehow or another, the technology of taking a dot mm -hmm. and imprinting it with a color could be transferred into engraving that dot into a piece of stone. So once you engrave that dot into a piece of stone, you put another of the dots around it, right. you can build a photograph. Right. And that's essentially what all these photographs were. As a matter of fact, we, de we developed a whole different dot pattern that would be consistent with the granule structure of the stone. So it looks like what the dots were that were engraved were really part of the stone. So they... There's a visual kind of context. And there. how did you find this quarry in that particular stone uh, in Minnesota? It was well. I think it's. I think the quarry is out in California. I didn't. I. I, I and it, and the, it was the manufacturers were uh, Cold Spring Granite, and they had uh, they had a whole different number of quarries, and they're the ones that had the quarry. So they. They showed all the different kinds of stones that they had, and we chose the stone we wanted. And then the transference occurred there through this new process, and and then everything was shipped from. Well, they they had wonder, they had phenomenal people. So the process is that you take this photograph, and you can put it onto a a photo a photosensitive rubber plate, and then in. Uh, expose that plate to a dissolving process so that the dots disappear or versa. So consequently, you then have a 
a piece of rubber that can be applied to a piece of stone and all the dots are staying in place and you just wash this down so that the adhesive is is eliminated and then you spray it with uh, a sand you can sandblast it it's called it's called grit blasting but uh, you know today you'll see this you'll see it uh, applied in many ways on glass windows and restaurants and various other places. Well, you have etchings of uh, fine etchings yeah. of a super yeah. fascinating. And then uh, transfer, you had uh, 2000 photos ish from the national archives that you sorted Essentially, through. Yeah. yeah. And so there are images. There's probably of, more. There is probably easily 10,000. That you, that you had, that, that you started with. Yeah. yeah. And you transfer this, uh, transfer to stone and then bring those stones to, to DC. To well, buy. they were all applied in big blocks. So, mm -hmm. You know, they're out in in the um, these big, monstrously big stone sh sheds that that manipulate these large, big blocks of stone. It's just absolutely phenomenal and noisy. There's so much noise that you could be there for two hours and be totally fatigued just mm -hmm. from the just from the impact of the noise. And you went out many times to oversee the many, transfers. Many, many times, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So it, it comes together, the, the memorial comes together, and then, you know, as you said, you know, events lead you to want to write the history. But you also put into the history, not only memorials, not only D.C., not only the personalities and aesthetics of uh, Washington and Jefferson and, and, and Vietnam, but also Lewis Nelson appears. And it turns out, even though I've known you for 30 years, Lewis, I picked up lots of tidbits there that I, I knew you flew helicopters. I didn't know you really flew helicopters, though. Yeah. <laughs> so you had, have, you are a very interesting person. You have had an extremely interesting life. It still is going on uh, robustly. But uh, there was a fair amount of, of your personal history. And, you know, it's part memoir. The book is part memoir. And that's, that's great because you've lived a life that's worth documenting. I, I don't know if you want to tell a couple of tales, but your, your own military history is not irrelevant to what occurs. You're a design person from day one, but you end up in the military before returning to design. And that, that is a very interesting chapter of your life from, from my perspective. For a person, I've known you as a design person, and that part of your life to me is very consistent. The, the extensive military history was less so. I guess when I look back at some of the writing of it, it became more apparent to me in, historically than anything else, largely because I made some, I, I, I was fortunate enough, I, I was born and raised here in New York. Uh, we were not a, we were not a, we were far from a wealthy family. So, you know, as a matter of fact, dad worked hard. Mom was uh, an immigrant. I'm second generation. We're no, we, it was a Norwegian family. And dad decided that he was going to become, he was a, a photographer. He loved photography as a kid himself he decided to become an electrical engineer he because of the nature of money and the nature of family and so forth he never finished high school so he had to he was self-educated so forth uh that that created another set of just circumstances just to just put that to the side when i was born i Luckily, once was able to go to one of the better high schools in in New York. There was maybe three or four major good. I went to a place called Brooklyn Tech, 
I just, uh, I, I was offered all kinds of uh, opportunities and specializations of, of degrees and so forth. I decided because it seemed interesting that industrial design was offered. This is back in 1950. Uh, and industrial design as a profession wasn't uh, even really very well known at that particular time, but there was a, they were educating people. I chose that. I eventually went to, um, to Pratt Institute, which was just down the street in Brooklyn. It was probably one of the leading design schools in the United States. However, it wasn't, it, it wasn't at the, 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 to go and have an education at that, at that time at even a place called Pratt uh, was not expensive, but it still was not cheap. And uh, we barely had any kind of money at that time as the family was concerned. I worked my butt off in the summer times and whenever I could to, you know, to have jobs, delivering mail at Christmas time, which you, people did at that particular time. So they had ROTC there. So I decided to go into ROTC one because- What year is this uh, roughly? This is, this is 1954. So right after the war, the Korean so, War has come to an end. That's right. Or, or has, has this, the ceasefire has has started. The draft still goes on. I decided in order to maintain an education and not be drafted, I would take ROTC and take it all the way through. So I graduated um, with probably the, with honors in design and in, in honors in, in mil, the military. And I was committed to a two-year uh, stint in the, in, the, in the Army. And I chose to go to armor school somewhere around that time also because I was a fairly good student in ROTC. They offered me a three-year uh, regular Army commission, which I thought might be helpful. It would cost one more year of my time, uh, but I might have some other opportunities. That would be good because I would be, a, you might, you, they say, a career officer. Right. So I, I took it. And lo and behold, an opportunity came up to go to flight school. I was one of the first commission officers to go through flight school for helicopters. And that was in, uh, that was in 58, uh, so 1959. And then all of a sudden, I found out that I was in a, a, a top, uh, organization, the Third Army Cavalry Regiment, and we had all kinds of stuff to do. And then uh, the Berlin Wall um, was built. And consequently, Jack Kennedy sent me and 40,000 other people over to Germany at that time in a buildup. Uh, and um, so, and, and you're flying helicopters and training and others to fly and, helicopters at that and, time. And I'm flying, yeah. Yeah, I mean, now we're now we're in Germany doing it, and at that same time, the Cuban Missile Blockade came up. So, and <laughs> I decided so, somewhere in the middle of all that to resign my commission, go back to graduate school. But you did spend some time on the front lines of the Cold War, provided a context of of military service. Thank you for your service, by the way. Uh, okay. But what had happened is that it, uh, it it in a whole there's a whole series of things that all of a sudden happened as a result of that. Not because of it, but just as a result. We, I spent this time in, in, in the army. And then before you know it, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at various things and there's opportunities that come up like, 
to be considered to do the Korean War Veterans Memorial. And then after that, to design the Dag Hammarskjöld Medal for the United Nations, which is given to peacekeepers who uh, have lost their lives in the peacekeeping operations at the United Nations. And then a number of these other memorials that just pop up, it just became part of my life, as well as designing skis for head and no-nonsense pantyhose and all kinds of other things. That... Do, you, do you want to describe a little bit of the non-military design? Because uh, I think, uh, you know, we, we, this is called bearing the lead. Everyone listening to this and pretty much everyone in modern society has seen Lewis Nelson work. They just don't know it until now. They're about to learn what they see maybe 50 times a day that is your work. <laughs> Take it away, Lewis. I figured, I figured, we, I worked it out and I was told that probably 4 million people every hour. That sounds about right. Look at a food package. Yeah. And on the food package, they will look at a little chart that says nutrition facts. And I was one of the principal people that put that program into existence at the food and, with the Food and Drug Administration. So, so a lot of interesting design and, and an interesting life. As I say, the, the, the book called Mosaic, War Monument Mystery by Lewis Nelson is just out, please. It is available on through your uh, booksellers. I think you'll find it a very interesting read. Lewis, uh, War Monument Mystery, the mystery part, just because it was complicated to put together, the war, you put the word mystery in the title because... There's always a mystery there. It's the <laughs> okay. how, it, how, it moves, how it moves through from one place to another. Yeah. The people have found it that way anyway. And I... I thought it was um, after after saying war, but it, it's more than the book is more than war and monuments. Although it is a good it is a good opening to the whole discussion about monuments today that we're talking about, whether they are in the South or in any place else in the United States, and the reasons why people want to put certain things, pull certain things down, and reasons why they ought not to. But that's, that's, another, that's, that's another story. It's another so story. I, yeah, I have maybe a, another book. I, that's another book. And that, uh, as a historian, I have very strong views on that. Let's save that for the next episode, our next conversation, when we discuss your next book. Again, Lewis Nelson, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a fascinating book, and I encourage our, our listeners uh, to, to get a copy. And uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, catching up with you today. Daniel, thank you very much. It's so good to be here and to have this discussion with you. I appreciate it. And thank you, everyone.